0: Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Then Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com slash courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. I want to welcome all of you who are following this series of messages and studies from the book of Acts. I'm still away from my home desk, in fact, uh, I'm with my sister and her husband for a few days at the beach, but I wanted to go ahead with Acts chapter 2, even with my portable microphone, and I hope the sound quality will be good. We have studied in the book of Acts so far how the church is unstoppable. Now, a lot of times we become discouraged with what we read about the church in the United States and around the world. We know that here in the United States, especially with the COVID uh, pandemic and the quarantining, that church attendance is down. Some people say that it's not recovering very well uh, as we begin to come out of the quarantine. And a lot of uh, surveys would say that there is reason to be concerned about the health of Christianity in America and in various parts of the world. Uh, But the church is unstoppable. I think we need to remain very optimistic and very aggressive and very assertive and go forward with the gospel undaunted, uh, because as um, we learned uh, at the beginning of this study, looking at what uh, Gamaliel said, the church in America and around the world is unstoppable because it isn't of human origin. It's not like when the Puritans founded Harvard or somebody founded the Rotary Club or even Uh, when the Founding Fathers established America. Uh, The church, uh, the family of God in this world, the kingdom of God, uh, the invisible kingdom, that holy nation that is on this planet, uh, is not of human origin. It was started by God, and Jesus said the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Well, the birth of the church uh, is in chapter 2 of the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Now, my professor, James Hatch, would say, The church was conceived in the womb of Judaism in Acts chapter 2 and actually born in chapter 10 when um, uh, the church became international at Caesarea. And there is a strong case for saying that. That's the way that we'll put it in our uh, Progress of Redemption studies. But um, typically we say the church had its beginnings on the day of Pentecost. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2, and we'll look at this. It says, when the day of Pentecost came. Well, what is the day of Pentecost? Why did God choose this day for the beginning of the church? Uh, I remember about a year ago, a man came up to me in New York at a recent, at a speaking engagement I had there, and he asked me that question. Uh, He said, why didn't or why don't the churches in the United States celebrate the day of Pentecost? the way that they do overseas. And I didn't really have a very good answer for that. He said, in Europe, it's a very big deal. It's like Christmas or Easter. Uh, School is let out. It's a public holiday in a lot of European countries. Um, It is the beginning of the church, and I wonder why Americans don't celebrate it like that. Well, I've been thinking about his question. In the Old Testament, when Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness, the Lord established a calendar for them. He was creating a nation for this population of liberated slaves. And, of course, every nation needs its calendar, its holidays. Um, America has an annual calendar with patriotic holidays and with religious holidays and certain days of the year when we do this or that, and helps us, uh, it helps us to organize our lives and gives us a sense of unity. And so God established a calendar for the Israelites in Leviticus 23, and it included holidays or holy days, which the people were to celebrate by uh, resting, and honestly, sort of by taking vacations and traveling, as it were, to Jerusalem and having family times together and and celebrating. One of those was Passover and the feast on, um, uh, and the feast of unleavened bread, which commemorated the night when the Israelites left Egypt. Uh, this is the. Uh, story that we read about in the book of Exodus when the Israelites uh, had just grown uh, exponentially uh, as a people, and the Egyptians had enslaved them, and the Lord sent Moses, you know that story, who unleashed a series of plagues against them. And the last devastating plague to strike Egypt was the death of the firstborn. The Lord told the Israelites that every family was to slaughter a spotless lamb, and to paint the doorpost of the houses with its blood, and the agent of death would pass over them. Uh, It says, uh, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so that's why this evening is called Passover. During that terrible night, Pharaoh was aroused from bed and realized what was happening, and he uh, rather unwillingly liberated the enslaved people until told the Hebrews to flee quickly from Egypt and they had to leave before the overnight bread was leavened. And so the Lord put a commemoration of that event in the Israeli national calendar and every year in the springtime the Jewish people uh, had a holiday to commemorate their freedom and it was called the Passover and the Festival of, Un- of the Unleavened Bread and this is uh, when the lamb was slain. Jesus died and rose again during this festival, and so for us became our holiday of Good Friday and Easter. Well, 50 days later, to mark the harvest season, there was another holiday. During this time, the barley harvest took place, and then the wheat harvest, and then the other crops began coming in, and on the 50th day after Passover, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were brought to the temple and presented to the Lord. Everybody brought the first part of their harvest to present it there to the Lord as an act of worship, and that later went to help feed the priests. And so it was that this next great festival was a harvest festival. It was called the Feast of the First Fruits, or the Feast of Weeks, because it occurred seven weeks after Pentecost or after a Passover. And it was also called Pentecost because it occurred exactly 50 days. That is seven days, seven weeks and one day after the Passover. And so the word pent means five like Pentagon. And so Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover and it celebrated the harvest season. Well, I'm telling you all of this because of its prophetic nature. In the sequence of Old Testament holy days, there was a prophetic prophetic pointing forward to the church. Jesus died on the Passover, and 50 days later, the church came into being on the day of Pentecost. The 120 disciples in the upper room that day were the first fruits of a great harvest of souls, which was to characterize the age of the church. So the church is grounded in the death and resurrection of Christ and founded for the evangelization and the harvest of the gospel. By being uh, established on the day of Pentecost, the church was appointed to go into the harvest fields of the nations of the world and bring about a harvest of souls for the kingdom. So I believe this is why the day of Pentecost and the prophetic calendar of the Hebrews followed the Passover, So verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. There were about 120 of them. They are uh, described for us in the prior chapter, uh, as we've already seen. Jesus started with 12, and now there are exactly 10 times that many gathered in the upper room, probably the same upper room where he had met uh, with his disciples during the Last Supper. And this involves the 12 apostles and some of their families and the women who followed Jesus in Galilee and our Lord's mother and his brothers were there. And it says in verse 2, suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now tornado survivors often describe the noise that envelops them when something like a freight train Uh, or an enormous waterfall, or a jet engine, something sounding like that descends on their house. Uh, We had a tornado earlier this year in Nashville, and my children, my grandchildren, were gathered in the middle of the house when the tornado approached, and my grandson told me it sounded like a huge train coming down upon them. And I think that must uh, have been what it sounds like. It doesn't say that there was actually a rushing wind, but there was a sound like the wind. And I think that that signifies the descent of the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is the Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma, meaning wind or breath. And so the sound of the wind rushing into the room represented the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And I have a feeling, we're not specifically told this, but I think it was such a loud tornadic sound that everyone in Jerusalem, maybe everyone in the entire city, stopped what they were doing and in panic and bewilderment wondered, what is that very strange, overpowering sound, that reverberating, sustained burst of noise? Uh, maybe you could have heard it a mile or two or three miles away. Well, verse 3 goes on and gives us another phenomena. Not only was there the sound of this rushing wind, but they sought to sea, But they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. Now, this is in keeping with what we read about in the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God and the glory, the Shekinah of God, came down into the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, or into the temple in the days of Solomon. It was like a a great cloud, a burst of fire that came down from heaven, representing the presence of God, and dwelt inside the holy place of that structure. And now these disciples are to be the temples of the Holy Spirit, the holy temples of God. It says in the book of 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And we're told that the church represents the temple of the Holy Spirit, Christians literally, represent now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you and will be in you. And so I visualize this as a ball of fire falling into the room and dividing into 120 tongues of flame, and each of them set these 120 people on fire. It was like the burning bush in the book of Exodus. It was a fire, but it didn't hurt or consume them. It looked like each one of these believers was just a flame, fire spreading all over them, and yet they were not hurt or burned or consumed. I think it meant that each and every single one of them was now anointed with the Holy Spirit. They were each baptized with the Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was one ball of fire representing unity, but it divided into 120 torches, that set each of the disciples on fire in a spiritual sense. And then verse 4 gives us a third phenomena. Not only do we have the sound of the rushing wind representing the Holy Spirit and the fire representing the fact that now God through the Holy Spirit is indwelling each one of them and setting them on fire, but it says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Well, what does this mean? It means that now these 120 and all who would follow them, who would be called by the name of Christ, had their job, their commission, their mission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of the world. They were momentarily, temporarily given an ability here to preach the gospel in the various languages of those who had come from all over the world to celebrate the day of Pentecost. It says in verse number 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Amalites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, which, by the way, may be how the church started in Rome. Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Now, it seems these are not incomprehensible, unintelligible syllables, and sounds. They were distinct languages symbolic of all of the tongues and tribes on earth. It was signifying the worldwide outreach of the gospel. There is a real sense in which this is the reversal of the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. When the people came together, they were unified, and they wanted to make a name for themselves and build a tower that would reach up to heaven. The Lord came down and He divided them up linguistically so they couldn't understand one another, and they were divided. Now, this is reversed. The people have come together, and the gospel of Christ is now spoken, and all of the various languages of the table of nations. And so there were three great phenomena, the sound of the wind, the tongues of fire, and the gift of languages. It would appear that none of these three phenomena lasted for long. This was the beginning, in other words, of a new dispensation. This was the initiation of something new that God was doing. But what the phenomena signified will remain until the church is taken up in the rapture at the end of time. The wind represents the uh, downcoming of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. The tongues of fire represent the anointing power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the languages represent the compelling purpose of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, this is true for us individually. It's true for us collectively. It's true for our church overall, your church, my church, our church. But I think that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become a part of the church, we are instantly and automatically a part of the body of Christ. It's not like joining the glee club when you're in high school. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and join his church by becoming a part of his family, then you are suddenly stepping, as it were, into the upper room and being consumed by the anointing, indwelling presence and power and purpose of the Holy Spirit— At the exact instance that you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit accelerates into your life like he did in that upper room. You may not hear the sound of the rushing wind. You may not see the fire. You may not speak in another language. But the Holy Spirit instantly occupies you and comes to live within you and, as it were, sets you on fire and gives you a a purpose and a power in your life And he wants you to take the gospel all over the world. Well, this is to me the great meaning of the day of Pentecost. And it's what makes the church different from every other institution uh, in the world. This is why the church is unstoppable. Let me conclude with a story that I read many years ago that I've never forgotten. It was about a wounded German soldier who was ordered to go to the military hospital uh, in Germany for treatment, and when he arrived at the large and imposing building, he saw two doors. One was marked for the slightly wounded, and the other said for the seriously wounded. He entered through the first door, and he found himself going down a long hall. At the end of it were two more doors, one marked for officers and the other for non-officers. He entered through the latter, and found himself going down another long hall. At the end of it were two more doors, one marked for party members and the other for non-party members. He took the second door, and when he opened it, he found himself out in the street. Well, the soldier returned home, and his mother asked him, how did you get along at the hospital? Well, mother, he said, to tell the truth, the people there didn't do anything for me, but you ought to see the tremendous organization they have. Well, that's the way that a lot of organizations are. But that isn't the way the church is. The church has a distinct, unstoppable purpose that genuinely, truly helps those who come and seek help at the cross. There's an old hymn that says, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And when I read the New Testament, I realize how very much we're dependent on the Holy Spirit who lives within us and is among us. The Apostles wrote letters about this. In the book of Romans, Paul said, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And as I alluded to earlier, the book of 1 Corinthians says, do you not know that you, speaking plurally of the church in Corinth, you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells within you? And then later he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit speaking individually to the believers who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? The book of 2 Corinthians says that we should keep our eyes focused on Christ because the Holy Spirit within us is in the process of transforming us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. The book of Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The book of Ephesians tells us that we are strengthened with all power in our inner being by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians, we are warned, do not quench the Spirit. The book of 2 Timothy tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And in 1 John, we're told, we know that we abide in Christ because he has given us of his Holy Spirit. And the last book of the Bible, and the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, says, and the Spirit and the Bride say, come. In other words, the Holy Spirit works alongside the Bride of Christ, the church, saying to the world, come and take the water of life freely. Every day, I ask the Lord to fill me with his Holy Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit lives within me because I've trusted Christ as my Savior. But I'm concerned because I want him to absolutely control every part of my life and to empower me and to have every area of my life under his governance. The great question isn't, how much of the Holy Spirit do we have? The question is, how much of us Does the Holy Spirit have? Well, this is the great lesson of the day of Pentecost that on this day, representing the beginning of the harvest season, these 120 in the upper room who are the first fruits of the great coming harvest were given a special anointing of the downpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had returned to heaven, he had ascended back to the throne. He can no longer be just at one place at one time and do all that he wanted to do in this world. And so he ascended up to heaven and he asked the Father for the gift of the Holy Spirit and he poured it down upon the church and baptized the church. And these three phenomena represents what the Holy Spirit now does in and through the church here and around the world. And it's true for you and for me. We need to be filled with the Spirit Make this your prayer. The Bible says if we know how to give good gifts to uh, our children when they ask us how much more does the Father know, how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, make it your daily prayer to be yielded and surrendered to the Lord and to be filled with the Holy Spirit as he makes you into the image of Christ and sends you out with the gospel. You never know when someone looking at your life or seeing your demeanor or hearing your words, or watching your witness lived out, will be the next person who will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. The day of Pentecost is the beginning of this great work that was God's surprise to human history, the beginning of the church. Well, next week we will pick this up in verse number 14 of the second chapter. But I thank you so much for listening to this podcast today. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media, edited by Elijah Rowe. Special music is by Jordan Davis. And for more information about the resources that I have available, then please check out my website, robertjmorgan.com. And for my daily one-minute sermons through the Bible minute by minute, go to my social media, Robert J. Morgan Ministries. Until next time, may the Lord bless you till we meet again.